Greetings, my friend, and welcome to Beyond Curious, conversations with brave adventurers like yourself that are taking voyages into the unknown to satisfy their curiosity, fulfill their purpose, and bring their ideas to life. My name is Brandon Fong, and I am so excited to have you here. Seriously, I am so grateful. Whether you are a returning listener or a brand new listener, you are in for a treat because today's guest is Britt Lefko. So often, I think why people feel frustrated in their personal development journey is because you're trying to convince yourself of something in a part of your brain that is disconnected from the place where the problem actually lives. And so it's not so much a process of learning as it is a process of unlearning. And something I say all the time is information does not change behavior. Insight does. Oh yeah, today is a deep one if you couldn't already tell from the wisdom that Brit dropped in that opening quote. And boys and girls, ladies and gentlemen, monkeys and squirrels, there is just so much gold in today's episode and I'm so excited for you to listen. And as always, I'm going to read Brit's bio in just a bit, but I would love for you to look out for these three specific things in today's conversation. Number one, why the problem isn't knowing what to do, it's unblocking what we need to get rid of that is standing in the way. Counterintuitive, intuitively correct. Shout out to Dr. Mark Wilson for giving me that. I use it all the time, but it is so true. There's so much information out there. There's literally no excuse for getting access to exactly what you need to do to unlock all of your goals. So if, if you have all the information, what is standing in the way? It's unblocking that head trash, that stuff that is actually preventing us from doing what we need to do to actually make our dreams a reality. So that's thing number one. Thing number two, how you can identify your limiting beliefs and then reframe them in a way that opens up infinite possibility. This is a really interesting one because identifying your limiting beliefs is a tricky thing because you don't even realize that they're limiting or you might not even realize what they are. But today you will actually get some processes around how you can identify those limiting beliefs and transform them. So that's thing number two. Thing number three, how Brit transformed a sales team's mindset to close million dollar deals instead of $30,000 deals, which eventually led to an IPO. I think lots of the mindset stuff we people talk about, it's like all airy fairy and fluffy, but Brit is such a master and she takes everything and turns it into super concrete ways that you can actually transform and unblock things. And I think that this case study that she shares at the end is one of the purest definitions of what real mindset work can unlock, not only helping you to be more fulfilled, but unlock massive results in your life as well. So at this point, you're probably wondering if you haven't heard of her already, who is Brit? Brit Lefko is one of the top business and personal development coaches in her field. She is an executive coach for Fortune 10 companies and works with high achieving entrepreneurs, executives, and organizations that understand that mindset is the key to their success. For over 20 years, she has helped clients achieve unprecedented growth and deep fulfillment. She is also a keynote speaker and leadership development expert who has worked with top companies globally and taken hyper growth tech companies through IPO. Guys, I am so excited to introduce you to Brit. So a few things I want to say. One, shout out to Brit's husband, John Davey. Again, my partner in the in-person event that I ran called a Curiosity Quest in Park City, Utah. So I actually got to hang out with Brit and John and they are just amazing human beings. So I love you both so dearly if you are listening to this. Uh, so that is thing number one. The other thing though is, man, Brit, when I say, when the bio said Brit has worked with top companies, I'm talking about Meta. I'm talking about Google. X. I'm talking about working with Perry Marshall and his team. There is so many incredible people that have been impacted by Brit's work. And um, it is, it's really cool because as you'll hear in the episode, Brit was initially impacted by her dad's work, Mar uh, Morty Lef Lefko, um, and has helped to transform and ascend uh, the, the wisdom that she had from her father into something that would work for her and also impact other people. So uh, Brit is a true master and this is the work. This is the work work that anyone can be doing. I'm really excited to share it with you because this has been transformational for me and Brit is just so much fun to listen to. So anyways, without any further ado, here is my friend, Brit Lefko. Lefko. 
Oh my gosh, ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, I am so excited. I have Britt's smiling face looking at me right now. We're about to drop so much wisdom on this episode. Before I officially welcome Britt, I'm just going to really quick add a little bit of context uh, and then she'll she'll jump right in. But I met this amazing human because of her other amazing human partner, John, uh, who is my partner in this event that we did in Park City, Utah called the Curiosity Quest. And the night before I got to meet Britt, stay at their house. She makes a mean, I think it was a bruschetta, right, Britt? It was a... Uh uh -huh. <laughs> mean bruschetta. I, I may or may not have puked in their toilet that night and it had nothing to do with her food. It had nothing to do with alcohol. That's a different story for a different time. But <laughs> Britt came in and spoke at our curiosity quest and we had a few late night epic conversations. And there's so many things I, I love about Britt. Uh, I was just going to share two before I bring her on. The first is I listen to a lot of content. I listen on increased speed. So I'm pretty good at digesting information, but Brit's word to value ratio is like unlike what I've ever seen. So sometimes I have trouble keeping up with you, which is amazing. <laughs> and number two is I am 100% confident. I can't say this with many guests, but if I just open this interview and say, Brit, welcome to the show, please talk. Um, it would it would go well for an hour straight and I wouldn't have to say anything. So I'm super grateful to have you here. This is going to be so much fun and we're going to dive in and go all over to the fun places. <laughs> Cool. Thank you so much for having me. I'm stoked to be here. Yeah. So let's let's start with Little Brit. You grew up in an incredible environment. You had amazing parents. And uh, one of the things I had heard you share on our Mutual Friends podcast, uh, Brandon Boyd and, and, and Bob Ragnaris, you had shared a little bit about how growing up, your dad had a big piece of paper uh, that was in his desk that talked about his life's mission. I would love for you to maybe share a little bit about that and that the environment that you grew up in. Yeah. So my, my dad had a really big vision and a really big dream. My dad's mission was to end suffering on the planet. And, um, again, not, not a small vision and his way of doing that, his perspective was that people suffer because of their limiting belief systems. That if people feel disempowered, if people feel not good enough, if people feel not worthwhile, if people feel undeserving, that they're less likely to go after what they want. They're less likely to have meaningful relationships. They're less likely to build the life that they want for themselves. And so my dad had created this process to help people shift limiting beliefs. And I grew up with that. So yeah, I, I grew up in a very unique environment. And one of the things that I think was was so strange for me was learning that not everybody thought that way. And I, mm -hmm. I just kind of would meet somebody and it was like, I could see their beliefs, right? It's like, oh, those are their survival strategy beliefs. Like those are the things they do to feel good enough. And those are right, the beliefs they have. And there was no judgment because I knew we all had them. But um, I was introduced to this process at a really, really young age. And so the types of conversations that I had with my parents, you know, I remember there was a teacher I had at school when I was in, I guess I must've been in kindergarten and I had a really hard time with her. And I remember telling my dad, you know, that I felt like Suki didn't like me and that, you know, I, I didn't like her class. And he asked me, you know, it's like, what do you believe that has you, you know, feeling that way? And that wasn't a weird question for me at five. Right. And I mean, at the time, I think what I wanted was to tell me that, you know, Suki was a bad teacher and, <laughs> and that he was going to do something about it. But it, it definitely made me realize how much my beliefs impacted my experience of things. And then kind of tied to that piece of paper in his office, getting that, you know, suffering comes inside, you know, it comes from our, our minds for the most part. And it, it reminds me of the Buddha quote, right? Pain is inevitable. Suffering is not. So we will experience pain, but the suffering associated with that pain really comes from our mindset. Hmm. So I want to dive more into like how you grew up in this context, because I, I heard you, I think you shared during our workshop together. It's like, you had almost kind of like developed around this concepts, these concepts. Cause they were, they were like so ingrained in you. It was so easy. It was so natural. It wasn't weird to be talking about seeing people's beliefs that it almost like worked on everyone else except for you. So maybe talk a little bit about your experience of, of how that worked in your development and your realization as you've kind of started to transition into bringing your dad's work to the world in your own way, shape and form. Yeah. So 
this is one of the things that I actually really didn't talk about for a long time because I felt like my loyalty to my family, like my belonging in my family was very tied to my dad's work. Like there wasn't a lot of separation in my experience between family and business and not in business, like a financial sense or, you know, like having these big conglomerates, but just in terms of our language, like our entire vocabulary was centered around beliefs and eliminating beliefs and the process and, you know, clients. And so when I was little, I have this vivid memory. I was in the bathtub. I was eight years old and I was talking about how my math class was too easy and I was feeling really bored and I tried to do more advanced math, but I started to get really nervous. And so I would open the book and I wouldn't be able to, to do it. Even though I knew I was capable of doing more advanced math, I got really scared. And so my mom was trying to work with me on the belief that I'm not smart enough and I remember trying to go through the process over and over and over again and the belief not going away and mm. being in a bit of a panic that I was like, but this is my family. Like I have to be able to do this. And the thing that was wild was the process worked for everyone. I mean, there was nobody that the process didn't work for. It was like one of those, you know, crazy, like hundred percent success rates that everybody was able to get rid of their beliefs, but me. And so that created this kind of mixed feeling, inner conflict, where part of me believed deeply in this work and its potential to, you know, get as close to ending suffering on the planet as was possible. I don't think I, I don't think I dream quite as big as my dad did. Right. Mm -hmm. But you know, that I, I believed in the power of this work, but I also was very aware that I couldn't figure out how to get it to work for me. And so I used to lay in bed at night when I was like nine, 10 years old, and I would stay up all night journaling, trying to figure out what my beliefs are going through the process in my mind. Cause at that point I knew the process inside and out and trying to get rid of them. And I couldn't. And that was a huge thing in my life that, you know, I wanted to do this work professionally. And then as I got a little bit older, I started taking on pro bono clients. And then I started taking on, you know, clients who couldn't afford my parents. And I felt so competent in helping them get rid of their beliefs, but I watched them get rid of every belief I still had. So I watched all my clients run right past me. And that mm. was really, really hard. And I didn't feel like I could share about it because I was afraid that it would make my family somehow lose credibility or that it would speak poorly of their work or that it made me an imposter or, you know, what, whatever those fears were. And so I just had like this inner world and this outer world where the chasm between the two got deeper and deeper and deeper, where on the outside, I was this kind of shining example of the process. I was, you know, so effective at doing it. My clients gave raving reviews, all was well. And on the inside, I still felt like I wasn't good enough. I still felt like I was a liability for my family. I still carried all of this really heavy baggage. And so that was, like I said, something that I just, I never talked about because it felt disloyal. And I, I didn't start talking about it until actually pretty recently when I started opening up and I was like, this is actually a really important part of my story because all of the work that I do is grounded in this question. How can I, how can I evolve this work so that I can benefit too? Like, how can mm -hmm. I, how can I be free and how can my story not just be, I mastered my dad's work and I lived in my dad's legacy, but that I actually created my own and that I, I built my own IP and I built something that feels authentically me and that I can create my own legacy. So, so it is actually this really big piece of my heart that, that was something I just kind of suffered in silently for most of my life. Mm. You dropped so much there. I, first, I want to plant a seed because I want to revisit the parenting conversation. You have some massively cool things and concepts about how to be more effective parents and empower on self-trust. And it's it's really cool to kind of hear that in your story with the way that your parents raised you. But then obviously there were some ways that you had to modify and adapt the system to work for you. And I feel like, you know, it, you, you kind of became in many ways your own toughest client. <laughs> and if you could like crack the code on yourself, like that's really like what has un allowed you to elevate your dad's work to a whole new level, which is amazing. So before we get into any of that other stuff, and I think we'll kind of answer the question, how you were able to crack the code on yourself and kind of decoding some of this. I want to give some people kind of some of the foundational concepts of this work that you've created that will kind of set the foundation for the rest of the content. And I know that lots of the stuff that you talk about is based on 
biology. It's how our brain works and understanding the basics of how our brains work, where beliefs are formed, that informs so much of how we can begin to untangle uh, the maybe negative false beliefs that we might be having. So I would love for you to maybe share a little bit about our brain's development and kind of how our beliefs are formed initially from the very beginning. Yeah. So one of the things my dad always talked about was the ages of zero to seven and why those are so important for how you develop your beliefs. And so I always had this kind of core understanding that, okay, well, most of our, you know, limiting belief systems are developed in our first seven years of life. And, you know, we haven't, we don't really understand cause and effect outside of ourselves. And so the way that our parents show up feels tied to us, but that was kind of it. And as I started to dig in on my own and be like, how can I understand this in a way that feels more robust? And again, that feels more mine. I got really interested in the neuroscience. And so there's a couple like little tidbits that for me really move the needle. And the first one is understanding that for the purposes of this conversation, there's two parts of the brain that are really important. The first one's your prefrontal cortex, and the second is your amygdala. Your prefrontal cortex is where logic, reason, rationalization, and willpower live. They're the part of your brain that dreams and visions and plans. It's the part of your brain that you know wants you to meal prep, that wants to make sure that you're hitting your goals. Your prefrontal cortex is incredibly valuable when it comes to visioning and logic. It is completely disconnected from the part of your brain that drives your behavior. And this is a really big deal, right? Your amygdala is your emotional brain. It is the part of your brain that houses all of your beliefs. It is the only part of your brain that exists between zero to seven, right? You do not have your prefrontal cortex, right? You have other parts of the brain, but parts that aren't important for this particular context, right? And so your emotional brain is actually the part of your brain that drives your decision-making. And so now you start to understand my prefrontal cortex is online about 5% of the time, right? I spend about 5% of the time in my prefrontal cortex. So if my prefrontal cortex is the part of my brain saying, all right, Britt, here's your goals and here's how you're going to hit them. But then 95% of the time, the part of my brain that believes I'm not good enough, I'm undeserving, I'm an imposter. If I make a mistake or fail, I'll be humiliated. What makes me worthwhile is sounding smart. Think about what my life is actually going to look like and feel like for me. So one of the things that I really kind of got up in arms about is working with so many people who are like, I'm lazy, right? Or I just, I don't care enough or I'm not smart enough. It's not an issue of laziness. It's not an issue of being undisciplined. It's an issue that the part of your brain that drives your behavior is disconnected from the part of your brain that knows what you want. And so you might have a really, really strong sense of discipline. You might have a really strong sense of desire, but if you're working on 5%, the likelihood that you're going to lose is pretty high. And so when I look at people who just say, I don't know what's wrong with me, why can't I get past this? Of course you can't get past this. It's 5% of your brain power, right? You might have more discipline than anyone on the face of the planet. You might hit a whopping six or 7%. You're still, you're still looking at a 93% counterbalance. So I think, you know, the, the first tidbit that is so core to why we are stuck is because of the relationship between our prefrontal cortex and our amygdala. The other thing that I think is really important is understanding that because we live in our amygdala between the ages of zero to seven, and because we do not have context, right? One way that I think about it is like, you're new in town. You don't know how this place works. You don't understand <laughs> how relationships work. You don't understand about the world outside of the four walls of your house. And so the question, and, and this question to me is like the answer to so much of our lack of understanding. The question that I think children really sit with is, if I were better, would things be different? If I were better, would things be different? And that question drives so much of our suffering and so much of how we form beliefs in the way that we do, because we don't understand that people are stressed or people fight or that sometimes your parents like might not have been a great match for one another. But at five years old, if your question is, if I were better, would things be different? Think about how that, what that, that kind of waterfall effect is from that question. So those are just a couple tidbits that I think are really relevant in exploring the neuroscience of how we form beliefs and how we make decisions. Yeah, 100%. And I, I love the analogy that I kind of drew in my mind and from your work is like we get all this early 
programming and it's kind of like if you're on your iPhone and you have an update if you're on iOS 1 and I don't even know what iOS we're on maybe iOS 15 whatever <laughs> but but it's like if you were still operating on like OG iPhone and you were still trying to run this new hardware and all the understandings that you have like if you haven't actually done the work to make those mental upgrades that were programmed at a very young age it's going to be like trying to have the the gas and the brake at the same time on all so many different things and so this is why I just I'm in love with your work because it's like so much. I one of my favorite quotes is, uh, you know, about it, it, when they asked Michelangelo about how the heck did you carve the David, and they said, "Well, I saw the angel in the marble, and I carved until I set him free." And I think so much of your work and and the thing that I think is really important is like how do you actually remove what doesn't belong so that we can become that most authentic, most empowered version of ourselves. So, if the problem isn't uh, adding more, it's it's like kind of getting rid of stuff what are some of the ways that we can begin i know you had this concept of like the table of things that we took off the table what are some of the ways that we can identify some of that early programming that may not be serving us so that we can bring that to the surface and actually start to work on it yeah i love this question so much and i'm going to break my answer into a couple pieces and the first one is you know it's funny i, I love that michelangelo quote as well and something that i believe really deeply is we spend so much time trying to become the person we want to be. And my perspective is you don't need to build that person. That person is locked inside of you. And it mm. really is about setting that person free. And learning is all prefrontal cortex. Unlearning is amygdala. So, so often I think why people feel frustrated in their personal development journey is because you're trying to convince yourself of something in a part of your brain that is disconnected from the place where the problem actually lives. And so it's not so much a process of learning as it is a process of unlearning. And something I say all the time is information does not change behavior. Insight does, right? Mm. Information does not change behavior. Insight does. And until you can translate information into an insight about yourself that helps you let go of something you don't really see the types of changes you want to see. And the example that you brought up about taking everything off the table, one of the ways that I look at this is infinite possibility for me, the, the space in which we are born is everything's on the table. It's on the table to work hard and enjoy life. It's on the table to have things be easy. It's on the table to have a great relationship. It's on the table to feel worthwhile. And through our life, we start taking things off the table. We say, oh, that's too hard or that's for other people or, oh, I could never make that happen or, well, with my track record, right? And these are examples of things we take off the table. And some someday, right, at some point we sit down and there's three, four things left on the table and those things aren't bad, but they're very limited, right? These are the things that we have decided are what we get to have in this lifetime. And for me, one of the most important questions that you can ask is, what did I take off the table, right? Did I take off the table again, that I could have a great relationship? Did I take off the table that I could have a seven figure business? Did I take off the table that I could have a successful business and still come home and spend time with my family? Did I take off the table that I could be a great parent? Did I take off the table that I could be deserving of love and happiness? What did I take off the table? And I think the next question is looking at where did you take that off the table? Understanding where we took things off the table gives us a lot of insight into the moments in our life that were relevant and impacted us in ways that we maybe didn't understand. I had a moment years ago that absolutely shocked me. I had a client who had no idea that his childhood had impacted him at all. I mean, he was completely blindsided by the idea that his childhood impacted how he felt and showed up in the world. And that was a really powerful moment for me because it made me realize that I assumed people knew that. And that for yeah. a lot of people, it's really just getting clear that we took things off the table and that we took them off the table early in life, right? Even just starting there, even before we get to some of the more advanced infinite possibility work, it's just getting, there was a particular environment I grew up in given my limited brain activity, right? G given my stage of development at that point in my life, given that I was asking the question, if I were better, th would things be different? And then inserting that question into your family environment and then looking at what must I take it, have taken off the table? What would it be logical for me to have taken off the table in that environment and just starting to question 
the things that we took off the table. And so I think that's a really great way just to start to get clear before even, you know, starting to shift things, right? We'll, we'll get into the more advanced stuff, I'm sure, but just really getting clear on, wow, I didn't even realize that having a critical father, I took off the table, me feeling good enough, right? Me feeling like I could do things right, or me feeling like my way was okay, right? Or me growing up in an environment where my parents fought all the time, I didn't even realize that I took off the table that conflict could be safe, right? I took off the table the idea that conflict could be a way to build intimacy, right? I just thought conflict was something that tears people apart. Or I took off the table the idea that people are interested in what I have to say. I took off the table the idea that I can go after what I want and fail and still keep trying, right? I believed that if I made a mistake or fail, it meant game over, that I should stop trying, that I failed and that that's the end of the situation, not the beginning, right? Not the place that motivates me to keep trying. So those are some examples that I've seen people come up with when they start to explore what did I take off the table? So I'm going to dig to translate that information into some insight for me personally and share something that was a breakthrough for me in the in the conversation that we had over bruschetta that one, that one night is whenever I've heard people talk about this kind of work, unless I just misunderstood something, I was always trying to identify very specific memories that could be translated into an insight that I had that may be an unhealthy thing. But one of the things that I realized that's a, a very small nuance in what you were saying there is that it was your general environment, like not maybe one specific crazy thing that transformed everything, but generally, what were your parents having conversations about? What was the emotional feeling there? And so I think what's really powerful in what you just said is like, and I'm going to repeat exactly what you said. The question I wrote down is like, what would have been logical to have been taken off the table if I were living in that context? So just to zoom in a little bit there, if somebody's kind of hearing this and like, okay, that's really cool. Would you encourage them to kind of search through their memory bank and ask, okay, what, let me put myself into what it was like as a kid. What were the conversations that we're having? What were the emotions? What were the general context? And then from that perspective, after marinating in it a little bit, like just going through and creating a list of like some of the things that might've been removed, like how would you encourage people to kind of like get into that state on their own? Yeah, you really nailed it. I think when you said the general environment, and I think very often people say, I don't have specific memories or I don't remember. And in this particular case, you don't have to. You can even think of how your parents are or were as adults and just get a sense of their personality trait, right? People, people will grow sometimes, but people who are not really committed to working on themselves very often are, are very much the same, you mm. know, in their fifties or sixties or nineties as they were, you know, as, as early parents, if anything, those, those qualities are really magnified. So one way you can start is by looking at what are some traits or qualities that I see in my parents today or saw in my parents as they got older and use that as a spark to try to figure out what it was likely, what, what the environment likely felt like as a young child. So do I have a, a father who, you know, showed a lot of feelings of powerless and got angry easily? Okay, well, you know, if my father at, you know, 90 was really, you know, again, was really controlling and, and there was that feeling that he wanted to feel powerful, what would that have been like to live in that environment if I can't remember when I was four? Mm -hmm. Right. Would I have felt empowered? Probably not. Would it have been my way? No, it probably would have been his way or the highway. And that can help to spark a general sense of what it was like. If you have, if you have specific memories, that's great. I would just encourage remembering typically the memories that stand out are more of a straw that broke the camel's back, right? If it's something that is really unique and different, you typically won't develop memories. You, you typically won't develop beliefs from it in the same way. If you have, you know, big traumas, of course, that can, that can kind of cut the mold differently, but in general, it really is how things were. And I'll give an example to show why. If I grew up in an environment where I had parents who were incredibly knowledgeable about all of this, and my parents told me all the time, you know, if I spilled or broke something, they would say, of course you did. You're still developing your motor skills, right? If my parents understood stages of development, they understood how my brain and body work. And they said, of course you spilled something, right? Again, you're still learning. Or if I didn't know something, they'd say, honey, 
you're five, you're seven. You're not meant to know everything. You're here to explore and learn. You're never going to know everything, but especially now, now is the time to learn. And then I was in school one day and I'm seven years old and I didn't know the answer. And my teacher shamed me or someone in the class made fun of me. I would look at them and be like, I'm here to learn. Why would you think I would know that? That doesn't make sense. The, re the, the, the response of the teacher or student would feel illogical to me. So, so often we say, yeah, but you know, if somebody was mean to you at school, that's where the belief came from. If you grew up learning that somebody mean had something deep going on with them, right? Let's use a different example, right? Imagine again, I'm five years old and you know my parents teach me in a way that I really can understand. Sometimes people are really kind and sometimes people are mean. Typically people who are kind are open-hearted. They're people who have a sense of confidence and they're excited to meet other people. People who are mean are typically scared to meet other people. They're more likely to push away instead of pull in. And I grew up hearing this all the time. And then again, I'm seven years old and I go to school and one of the bullies at school is like, you're stupid. I would look at that bully and be like, they're really close. They're afraid to meet new people. I wouldn't take that personally. So mm -hmm. as much as, you know, individual memories can be useful, they typically will be a sense of what you already believed or how you already felt. Because if you grew up in an environment with parents who really understood how the brain worked and how to help you develop in a really healthy way, if something happened at school, you would interpret it completely differently. And if anything, right, you would feel equipped to handle it. You would not take it personally. And you would, and you would also probably in a lot of ways have the confidence where, yeah, I mean, just you, you would, yeah, you'd be able to manage it and navigate it really differently. So those are, that's why I would say, yeah, like think about how your parents are today or were, you know, at their, in their later years, if you can't remember their childhood or your childhood, and then just kind of work backwards to guess what would it have been like? And then also look a little bit at your personality traits. Were you really outgoing? Did you have a ton of energy? Did you have parents who were really tired? And so even just your energy was hard for them at the end of the day, it was like, God, Britt, just be quiet, right? Like I, I'm, I'm tired. So I think just like looking at how things were in general, yes, is a really helpful way to start to get clear on, on what that environment was for you. Yeah. And just to add yes. And that I think a huge one, two punch that would create incredible connection with your parents, if they're still around or your grandparents, if they're still around something that was so valuable for me is I just, I don't know how I framed it, but I just asked, can I interview about your life and learn about it? Right. I learned so much from interviewing my grandparents and like my grandpa came over and to this country from China when he was young and was worried about getting sent back and the war and that kind of stuff. So it was like, it became really apparent, like, okay, my grandpa was a warrior because he had rightful reason to be afraid of this, the shit that he was going on. He could have lost his life. He could have. And so it makes sense that my dad would be a warrior. And then it makes sense that when my interviewed my dad, that that showed up. So it's like, I think that idea of just like, it'll create one really cool connection with your parents or grandparents as a project, if you just kind of do that, but two, to kind of like remove, it's like taking a step away from your beliefs. Like, oh, that makes sense that that is the conclusion that I would have made if that was the context that I grew up in. So I love that so much. And you, you kind of, in your language pattern, you kind of alluded to something that I thought was super ninja in, in the way that you approach things. And you were kind of talking about like, helping that earlier child version of you that didn't have the brain capacity or context or understanding of knowing that there was more than one interpretation of way something could have been um, like that is super powerful. And one of the takeaways I got from your workshop at our event was talking about how like if you get the adult version of you to understand this, it's not nearly as powerful as like getting the child version of you to kind of go ahead and have that conclusion. So I may be kind of throwing a lot at you, but like you, you kind of leverage this, this ability to kind of provide that child version of you with alternative viewpoints. And I think that's a massive breakthrough for me and the way that you handle that. So I would love for you to maybe share how we could go about doing that, or maybe the way that you walk your clients through that process. Yeah. So the adult version of ourself is equipped with all sorts of logic and perspective, but trying to convince the adult version of yourself of something that's happening right now, again, really doesn't get to the core. And so something that I do, and this is something that I learned from my dad and I 
ultimately kind of found my own way, right? His way wasn't effective for me. So I've evolved it a lot, but it came from that core of helping the younger version of yourself to see things differently. So one thing you can do is as that, that child version of you, let's just go with, you know, five-year-old Brit or five-year-old Brandon or five-year-old whoever's listening, right. That they're in a situation and, um, let's use like a kind of an example that a mother who, um, or father who is a warrior, right. Let's use your example, father who is a warrior. And that five-year-old is feeling like, well, it must be because the world is not a safe place. Like there's a sense of unsafety. If someone's worrying, clearly something's wrong. If dad was happy, like it's because the world is good. If dad's worried, dad is smart. Dad knows what's going on. It must be because the world is not a safe place. And so something you can do is you can have the adult version of you support the younger version of you in understanding things from a different perspective. So if you know things about kind of their childhood, like Brendan said, I mean, that is a, that's a game changer. Understanding where they came from and why they were the way they were creates really powerful understanding. Even if you don't know anything about their lives, you can still find alternative interpretations. So I'll use one example for each. I'll use one if you know, and one if you don't. So if adult Brandon was hanging out with little Brandon and was sitting and little Brandon said, you know, I think it's really scary out there. You know, dad's worried, like something, something bad might happen. Like it's, it's not safe here. Adult Brandon, if he knew about his grandfather's story might say, well, it would make sense that you would think that, but actually when grandpa came to this country, he was so scared of being sent back. Things were very unsteady. So for somebody like that, right, it wasn't the world that was unsafe. It was for someone like that, their experience was characterized by this sense of unsafety because he was afraid of being sent back. It wasn't that the world was unsafe. Being sent back was unsafe. And little Brandon would say, oh, so it wasn't that the world was dangerous. It was being sent back. Well, could dad get sent back? And and adult Brandon would say, actually, no. Once time went by, grandpa was safe here. So if grandpa had known hey, the tides changed. Everything's good now. You're safe here. And his fear had gone away. How do you think he would have raised your father? And little Brandon would say, well, he would have said that he was really safe. Oh, interesting. And then how do you think your dad would have raised you? And he'd say, well, he'd tell me I'm safe because I'm not going to get sent back. Once little Brandon gets it, he's not going to get sent back. And the, the worry came from this misunderstanding you know, of how things kind of get passed down, the feeling goes away. The feeling goes away completely because what happens is you're actually coming to the truth. And there's something really beautiful here because again, trying to convince yourself of something that doesn't feel true does not change your emotional response. Mm -hmm. It doesn't change your baseline way of thinking. It doesn't change your experience. When you get, you're not learning something new. You've always been safe. But this thing that felt true wasn't true. And the example that I love so much, it's like realizing that Santa didn't exist, right? As long as you believe Santa exists, you're going to put out milk and cookies for this concept, right? You put out milk and cookies, you get excited, you think, feel, and behave consistently with your beliefs. So you're having this whole experience. When you realize that Santa's not real, you stop putting out milk and cookies, right? You start asking mom and dad for Christmas presents instead of hoping that Santa brings them, right? Your entire worldview changes. It's the same thing with your beliefs. When you get that your grandfather was afraid, not because the world was unsafe, but because being sent back was unsafe. And you see how that gets passed down. Your entire internal experience changes. Now, let me use an example. If, if you didn't, hadn't interviewed, right? Your grandfather, and you didn't know this, a way that you can play with this is by looking at, well, maybe dad, we'll just start with dad. Maybe dad thought the world was an unsafe place and maybe you're not dad, right? Maybe dad thought the world was unsafe, but you didn't think the world was unsafe, right? Or maybe dad was a worrier and you can kind of guess a little bit. Maybe dad was a worrier because of all the things that he thought was going to happen. But let's take a pause. Did all those things happen? All the things dad used to worry about. Do you remember all them happening? And little Brandon would say, of course, because they didn't happen. No. Interesting. So dad was worried about things that never happened. Does that make sense? Mm. And little Brandon would say, 
No. And if dad knew they weren't going to happen, do you think he would have been worried? And little Brandon would say, no. So do you think it makes sense to worry about things that are never going to happen? And little Brandon would say, no, that makes no sense at all. So you can kind of play with it however you want, whether you know the information or not. But the worrying example is kind of a funny one because what often happens is, and I can't tell you the, you know, hundreds of clients I've worked with on this, but so often we see our parents worrying. And when we actually look at, did any of those things happen? They didn't. So empowering the, the kid version of you to get, oh my God, my parents spent all of this time worrying about things that never happened. And if at five years old, you were like, dad, those things never happened. You should stop worrying, right? You would have had a really different experience. So those are just two examples of how you can kind of play with that. I love that. And it, it reminds me of something else that you shared that was just transformational for me is when you were talking about how empowering it is to view everything as a relationship. Like my relationship to worrying is a relationship that I have. And like that empowers you to like look at a lot differently than it being like so close to you. So I don't know if this is like a, a nuance that we can get into a little bit, but like if we can kind of like share a little bit, or if you could kind of share a little bit about like examining those beliefs, turning them into a relationship, and then how you can actually work on it from the relationship perspective instead of it being a lot closer than you. Yeah. A, a really good example of this, I think, is money because a lot of people have really fractured relationships with money. And so if you grew up in an environment where money was a huge stress, very often people will conclude that money is scarce and hard to get. You have to work really hard for it. You can't trust it. You have it one minute, it's gone the next. And as you're trying to understand different interpretations, right? How else could five-year-old Brandon have understood this? Or how else could five-year-old Brit have understood this? It's really helpful to get money wasn't the problem. There was money in abundance. There's always people who have money. Money wasn't the problem. That your parents' relationship to money became fractured. And that could be for a number of different reasons. It could be because they didn't have the same skill set that you did. It could be because it was a different time, right? In mm -hmm. the era of Ford, you start where you start and maybe you work a couple steps up, but you're not really going to change your life all that much. Where in today's society, right, you can become an entrepreneur, you can think creatively, you can think outside the box, you can sell your art on Etsy, right? There's, um, you can, I had a client, I just think this is so fascinating. He was a kid, he was really into video games and his dad was like, stop playing video games. And he ended up creating a YouTube channel talking about video games and made more than most people will make in their lifetime as a child. <laughs> and his dad made him shut down the business because he didn't understand. Wow. So this guy was making, you know, you know, the equivalent, right? Whatever. I won't share his laundry, but he was making a huge amount of money, right? He was making a huge amount of money, high six figures as a child. And his dad made him shut it down because he didn't understand that you could have a serious business that way. You know, he later became an entrepreneur in, in a different way, but we live in a very different world. And so understanding that your parents' relationship to money was telling of who they are, how they grow up, their skills, and the time that they existed inside of. That tells you very little about your relationship to money. And so when you get, it wasn't that money was scarce. They just had a really fractured relationship to money. And if they had either been able to heal their relationship to money, right, by getting whatever number of different things, right? I won't go back through the examples. If they had healed their relationship to money, you would have seen money as an abundant resource. It's not that you need to learn or convince yourself that money is abundant. Money factually is abundant. Mm -hmm. But if you have a fractured relationship to it, you are likely to not be able to access it in that same way. When you heal your relationship to it, you start to see it as a tool that is available and accessible, right? Same thing if you think of a relationship to worry, it's not that the world is dangerous. You just had a fractured relationship to worrying. So yeah, you can think of things as a relationship, especially in your childhood, as a way to get, it wasn't, it wasn't the thing. It was your relationship to the thing. And mm -hmm. it's, it's just, it's, yeah, it's a really effective kind of perspective that you can work into all sorts of environments to get oh, I just have had a fractured relationship to this thing and that's why it hasn't worked out for me, right? I've had a fractured relationship to work and that's why I work, you know, 16 hours a day, not because I have to, but because my relationship to work is fractured. My relationship to safety is fractured. My relationship to love is fractured. It's not that love doesn't exist or that it's hard to manage. I've just had a fractured relationship to it. So yeah, I, I think it is kind of a helpful tool. 
So powerful. And just kind of touching on your example before about Santa Claus is just just taking it back level for our friends hanging out with us today. Just like imagine what it'd be like if you just that, that moment of realizing that Santa Claus wasn't real. And what if your Santa Claus is your relationship to this thing that is just <laughs> causing shit ton of havoc in your life? Like if, it, if that could just disappear as easily as you realize that Santa Claus isn't real. That is the the magic of your work, which is so freaking cool. And um, there's there's so much that I, like I want to go down the rabbit hole on like a bajillion different things, but we we only have a certain amount of time. So Brit's always welcome back for part five, part six, part seven, because <laughs> there's so much Thank wisdom you. that you have. But but there's a there's a I want to talk about the other side of what we've been talking about. And that is the like and this is really relevant for me. So this is kind of selfish and you have some really cool perspectives on this. But it's when you step into parenthood, like Lee and I are expecting babies coming very soon. It's like, obviously, all this conversation is like, oh, my God, like the way that we are programmed as a kids, obviously, is this stuff that we carry around. So like being very intentional about articulating things or giving that context and giving that nuance. So maybe your kid, when they grow up, even though you're probably never going to be perfect, even though there's, because there's no way they, they will have to do less of the conversations with the young version of themselves <laughs> that maybe is damaging. So I know you have lots of, uh, put a lot of thought into how to have these empowering conversations with kids in a way that helps them to have more healthy relationships with these things that we were just talking about. So we'd love for you to share a little bit about that. Yeah. And congratulations. I'm so excited for you guys. Um, so I think what I see as a pattern in clients that I think is most problematic is most people look externally instead of internally for information, right? And this is not, you know, factual information, but it, it really is about self-trust that on some level, most people have a fractured sense of self-trust. And if you go back to childhood, I think one of the greatest gifts you can give your child is teaching them that they can trust themselves. And there's a couple different ways that you can do that. The first one is distinguishing between your way and the right way. Where I see people really, really limited is we're always trying to figure out the right way to do things, right? Again, we're looking externally, what's right and what's wrong. If I'm looking for the right way to do things, I'm disconnected from my own creativity. I'm disconnected from my genius zone. And unfortunately, there is no right way and wrong way, yet I might have severe anxiety being afraid that I'm going to do something wrong. So we get in cycles of anxiety, being afraid of doing it right. And then we're looking externally to try to, or to right, we, circles of anxiety for doing it wrong. And then looking externally to try to do it right. And what gets missed is our entire potential for innovation, creativity, and our genius zone. So where that comes from is typically parents see, if I do it my parents' way, I don't get in trouble right? And if I do it my way, I do get in trouble. And so what I learn is there's a right way and a wrong way to do things that my way is wrong and their way is right. A way that you can break this cycle for your children is by distinguishing between your way and the right way. So an example of that would be, right, your kid wants to play on the floor and it's time to eat dinner. Now, obviously you need your child to eat dinner. So this is not about your child getting whatever they want, but what it is is saying, hey, it's time to eat dinner. And they say, but I'm playing. And instead of saying, well, it's time to eat dinner. You need to get up and come to the table saying, it sounds like what you really want is to play with toys. And that sounds really fun. And your kid's like, yeah, that's what I want. And say, well, in this particular time, we have to do it dad's way, right? Let's say this particular time, we've got to do it dad's way right? Your way is to play. And that sounds really fun, but because, you know, we need to make sure you eat, we're going to do it dad's way. But what if, you know, tomorrow morning we have some playtime and we do it your way. So it's using language that shows it's not that you're wrong. It's not that you're bad. It's not that what you want doesn't matter in this particular case, we have to do it my way. And so what you start to do is help your child to get clear on what their way is, right? What are their kind of natural instincts? Is there a way to talk things out loud or an external processor, or is it to think, right? Sometimes we ask our child a question and we expect them to answer right away. Now, if it's me, I'm going to answer right away. I'm an external processor, right? I think by speaking, if I was an internal processor, I would have to sit and I would have to think in order for me to know the answer. So getting clear on what is your child's way, do they pause? And instead of saying, I need an answer right now saying, do you want to take a minute and think about it? Because your way is okay, right? If you need to take a minute and think about your answer and then come back, that's fine too. So it's, it's really getting clear on how does your child function? And that doesn't mean they always get their way, but it's validating that their way is just as 
just as important as your way, even if they don't get their way. So the first thing is valid or distinguish between your way and the right way. We're not doing this because it's right. We're doing it because it's my way. And I think the second thing is being really, and you'll love this one, Brandon, because it's around curiosity, but being really curious about what they're trying to tell you. They are giving you information on how their beliefs are forming, how their brain works, how they react, what they need. So being really, really curious and asking them questions will give you a sense of where are the places where I'm slipping? Because if you notice that your child is playing with something and they get really frustrated, there's a really good chance that if you ask some questions, you'll find that they either they feel like they failed. I mean, it's shocking what children will tell you. Like, well, I mm. screwed up. How does my four-year-old already have a sense that they screwed up? Why are they not empowered and excited to keep trying when they can't figure it out? Where their, their lack of perseverance is coming from somewhere. And if you ask a few more questions, you might find they feel like they should be able to do it already. Well, why can't I do it? I should be able to. These are conversations you can have to prevent them from carrying these beliefs on and to help kind of recalibrate around some of the beliefs they already have. So I think the first thing is the greatest gift that you can give your child is to teach them to trust themselves. Ask them, right? Should I, should I do this? Should I do that? What do you think? What's your mm -hmm. perspective on that? Right? How does that feel for you? So get them to really question themselves, distinguish between your way and the right way, and then get really, really curious when they get frustrated or upset on what's going on for them, because it will be information about places, again, where they might be starting to form these beliefs and you can cut in and help them to shift. I actually, I want to add one more, one more. Mm -hmm. um, the other one, most people that I work with have a belief that change is difficult and takes a long time. One of the ways that you can help children believe that change is possible is about telling them about changes you see in yourself, right? Your, mm. your children look at you as a mirror for what's possible. So if you tell your children, I used to believe this, and then I learned something new and I don't believe that anymore. You're teaching your child that change is possible. So one day when they feel stuck, instead of saying, this is just the way I am, they'll say, well, mom changed or dad changed. I bet I can change too. Your belief that change is possible will completely change your worldview. It will completely change what you pick up on, what you notice, right? If you think of your reticular activating system, the part of you that notices the red car, they will notice possibilities for change instead of reasons why they are the way they are. So it is an incredibly expansive environment to teach your children, show your children places that you were wrong, things you thought were true and you changed your mind. I used to be that way, but I worked on myself and I changed. That is, I think, you know, from, as, as the, from the perspective of what will make one of the biggest differences, your child will never believe that they are the way they are and that they are stuck that way. And this is just how it is. They will always believe in the ability to grow and change if you show them the ways that you've changed. So that's another thing I would add. Hmm. I love how this conversation is just unfolded because we talked about the very beginning about like how these beliefs are formed and how we can kind of work on ourselves. And like, if you're doing that work on yourself, it just really empowers you to show up more effectively in all other relationships, whether it's with your kids or other people. And so this question that I, that just kind of popped into my head, that I think kind of like correlates also back to the self-work, but also the work with kids and also other people is another kind of fundamental biology belief that I think is really empowering to really understand. And you had talked about this, how like your, your brain's primary function is determining whether or not you're safe. So I, I think this is a really powerful insight that can kind of weave a whole bunch together. So I'd love for you to maybe share a little bit about that. And then the difference between uh, safety versus uncomfortable being uncomfortable. Yeah. Yeah. So I, I, this is something that I saw. One of the ways I come up with new things is I start to see patterns in clients. And then I get really curious about the patterns. I'll follow them and I'll kind of work with them until they become like a, a concept or a theory or an idea, or, you know, kind of one of my pillars. And the, the thing that I think is really overlooked is that the primary function of the brain is safety, not happiness, right? Your brain is not designed to make you happy. Your brain is designed to keep you safe. And during your early years of life, your main goal is to try to understand what is safe and unsafe. Now, unfortunately, your brain does not categorize safe and unsafe based off of danger. It categorizes safe and unsafe based off of what creates harmony or disharmony in your family. The reason why is because your survival does not depend upon you. It depends upon 
your family. So when there's a feeling of harmony, it will calibrate with your nervous system. I'm loved, I'm safe, everything's okay. If there's disharmony in your family, your entire nervous system will be sending you messages. Something's wrong. We're not safe. What if we're abandoned? What if we die? What if we're not good enough? So your brain is always categorizing safe and unsafe. Again, not based off of danger, but based off of what creates harmony or disharmony in your family. So let's look at some examples. If I have a family that really doesn't do, I like the conflict example for this one. If I have a, a family that really doesn't have hard conversations and doesn't do conflict, if there's conflict and all of a sudden the environment in my family is like, this is not okay. Things get really tense. My brain will say, oh, conflict, unsafe. Mm. Conflict is not unsafe. Conflict is not a threat to my survival but my brain doesn't know the difference. So all of the things in your life that create fear today give you information, not based off of what is dangerous. They give you information on what created disharmony in your family from zero to seven. Now your brain, like Brendan said, your brain doesn't update. So these beliefs are still living in your brain. And so you have these safety mechanisms, right? If you really look at fear, the goal of fear is to help you see a potential threat to your survival. But again, your brain doesn't distinguish between a real threat to your survival and a perceived threat to your survival. So you have the same physiological response if you're face-to-face -face with a tiger as you do if you're speaking in public, because if speaking in public means that you need to be perfect and being perfect in your family created harmony, so that's safe, but being imperfect, feeling imperfect in your family created disharmony, you're going to be just as afraid of public speaking as you would be of a tiger, not because it's unsafe, but because your brain thinks it's unsafe. So we have all of these things that create anxiety and fear, right? We look at, you know, anxiety disorder is rising. There's so many people who walk around with anxiety. Why? The reason most of the time, I'm not going to say in all cases, but in so many cases, the reason we have anxiety is because we have categorized so many things as unsafe that we are now feeling like we're trapped inside of this unsafety in order to be safe. I need to be liked. I need to be perfect. I need to be credible. I right now we're trying to walk around being liked and safe and credible all the time. And if we're not, we feel unsafe. So we have all of this anxiety, but if you look, the things that you categorize as unsafe in your early years were not unsafe. They were unpleasant or they were, they were uncomfortable. And one of the greatest gifts that I think you could practice, all of you audience listeners, if you take one thing from this, something that I think is so valuable is learn to distinguish between unsafe and uncomfortable. If you feel mild anxiety all the way to abject terror, anything that is fear related, if there is no actual threat to your survival, if you are not face to face with a tiger, and the chances are, if you are listening to this podcast, you will probably not face unsafety in this lifetime, right? True unsafety more than maybe a few times, right? Maybe a few, but in general, you are going to be safe all the time. You have, if you have a home where you are protected from the wilderness, you are protected from the seasons, right? For the most part, you're going to be safe. So when you notice fear, when you notice that resistance, when you notice that anxiety, relabel it, label it correctly. Your brain is incredibly neuroplastic by reminding yourself, oh, my brain thinks I'm unsafe right now. That's why I'm really scared to give this presentation. I'm not unsafe. This is just outside of my comfort zone. It's just uncomfortable. Your brain will start to shift because again, that neuroplastic nature of your brain, the incredibly neuroplastic nature of your brain allows you when you relabel something to look at it differently. So what, what Brandon brought up is I, I have this concept that I work through with clients, which is unsafe versus uncomfortable. When you feel fear mention, oh, my brain, you think I'm unsafe right now. I'm actually not unsafe. This is just outside of my comfort zone. When you feel unsafe, you shrink, you often cower, you feel powerless. There's nothing you can do. When you feel uncomfortable, if you're outside of your comfort zone, that will typically trigger a feeling of motivation. Oh, this is outside of my comfort zone. I like to live outside of my comfort zone. All right, it's uncomfy, but I'm gonna move forward. So you have a completely different relationship to the thing you're about to do if you call it outside of your comfort zone versus calling it unsafe. Mm -hmm. Oh man, there's so like hit that rewind button, like what, however long that segment was. There's so much, and and the the nuances are so important too. That's what I've learned about your work. It's like the small little details actually really do matter. And like what I picked up in what you just shared there that I didn't capture as much the first time I heard you sh share this concept is like the fact that your child brain 
safe and unsafe was harmony or disharmony. So I think we can kind of almost tie the conversation together kind of when we were talking earlier about like revisiting the general environment of your childhood, you could ask yourself, what are the contexts in which disharmony was created in my childhood? And that would be lead you to uncovering where you felt unsafe, which would probably uncover lots of other stuff. So uh, definitely want to spend some time journaling on that personally. So, oh man, Britt, I, I knew an hour would fly by so fast with you. So I'll, I'll do, I do this sometimes and it's totally fine either way. I'll give you uh, choices. <laughs> so right, I'll give ready. you two, two forking paths. Uh, one forking path is I texted your husband, John last night. And I said, Britt's coming on. What are some epic things I could ask her? And one of the things that he brought up that I thought was super cool that I haven't heard you share about is this case study that you had with MuleSoft. Um, and I thought that that would be really cool because it kind of shows, we talked about internal, we've talked about external with, with kids. And then, you know, this work also can expand beyond that to your, your company and to the, the, the world at large. So that's path A, we'll call that path A. Path B is one of the other alignments between your work and what I've learned uh, from, from, from my work that I'm interested in bringing in the world is this concept of how powerful curiosity is in this entire world, right? And so like learning where to be curious and how to be curious about specific things for yourself and for others um, is just a, a super interesting thing I'd be curious to explore. So maybe we have time for both, maybe we don't, or if you have A or B, we can pick whatever works for you. <laughs> um, I'll, I'll follow my husband's path on this one. I think, okay. I, think, right. I think he was onto something as usual with expanding <laughs> because I think a lot of people think personal development is therapy, that that's it, right? It's either like you do therapy, you do counseling or, or you don't do anything. And and one of the things I love so much about my work is I work mainly with entrepreneurs and I work on the intersection between the business and the personal. Where are the places where your beliefs impact your business? And the goal ultimately is about creating a happier, more fulfilling life. But business is a really great window into that. And so being able to impact somebody in their business space, one, they're typically more willing to invest in their business than they are in themselves. So business is a really great way to get people to care about these things. And there are obviously huge financial repercussions for doing that type of work. But this is not just about sitting on a couch and talking about your childhood, right? This is about getting that our beliefs limit, not just our sense of ourselves, but what we believe is possible in business and how we show up in business. So the example that my husband brought up was, I, um, I did work with a company years ago, um, a tech company in San Francisco, and I was interviewing for a job there in a kind of development. It was like a field development role. And I remember that I was talking to the person who would later become my boss. And I was asking him questions about the company, right? It's like through the interview process. And he talked about this book called The Challenger Sale. And so I read the book and it was all about kind of that what people want is not like the, the friend, what people want is to be challenged. So I'm like, well, all right, I'm gonna use this on you. I'm gonna challenge you and that's gonna be the way I get the job. And so what I talked about is how I knew that this company ultimately was on track to IPO, but their average sale price was far too low, right? They were doing a lot of 20, 30, $40,000 deals with the occasional hundred, $200,000 deal. And what I kind of challenged him with is the idea that most salespeople believe that bigger deals are harder to close, that it's easier to close smaller deals and it's harder to close bigger deals. And I challenged them and I said, that's a limiting belief. And what I have, and I, I kind of reframed that actually I think bigger deals are typically easier to close because you remove yourself from the competition, right? Otherwise it's a race to the bottom. If you're closing the same deals as everyone else, if you're doing some sort of a point to point solution, typically what people are asking is about price. They're asking about, you know, right? Like technical features. I said, but if you can completely change the conversation, if you can have a, a point of view, right? It was all about having a point of view. If you can have a point of view for how people can think differently, if you can challenge them to think differently, now all of a sudden you're creating a partnership where you can start selling, you know, many hundred thousand dollar deals. But I said, you can, you can sell a million dollar deal. So they brought me on to basically share this point of view with the team and to teach the sales team to do that. So I did presentations and I led workshops and I worked with people. And what ended up happening was we changed our average sale price. We sold million dollar deals. We started having our average sale prices be in the hundreds of thousands of dollars. The entire field team changed the way that we did things. They did ultimately IPO. They were then acquired by Salesforce. So, you know, the, the, the rest is kind of history for the company, but that's an example of where a belief system got in the way of people feeling like they could sell the deals that they needed to sell in order for the business to go where it needed to go. And I have, you know, a million examples of this. That's just one, but I see this in business 
all the time, right? How we think we have to do things. Well, I have to do things this way. Well, you're completely disconnecting from your genius zone. If you're looking at how you think things need to be done. I even think of, you know, a book like the 10 X versus two X, right? It's, it's really getting that the beliefs that we have about business are limiting the beliefs we have about ourselves limit us in business. And I think I'd, I'll just add one other, one other piece to this. Another thing I did in my consulting with different companies is look at where the places, especially with sales teams, just because they're the ones typically that bring in the money. So they're typically the most invested in. But one of the things that I think is really important is getting as a salesperson, if you're focused on, do they like me? Do I sound smart? Right. Do I sound like I know what I'm talking about in a sales conversation? Who are you focused on? focus on yourself, right? And in a sales conversation, in order to be curious, you need to be focused on the other person. So being aware how our beliefs that, that, you know, what makes me good enough is having people like me, that a belief like that can really inhibit our, our effectivity, our ability, effectiveness as effectivity, our effectiveness (laughs) as a salesperson. I got so excited. I made up a word. So, um, so I think it's, it's, something that I really encourage to all of your listeners is get curious about how your beliefs impact your sense of yourself. Get curious about how your beliefs impact how you show up as a parent, get curious of how they make you show up as a partner, but also get curious about how your beliefs impact you in your business, right. In your career, if you're a business owner, or, you know, if you're an executive or if you're just starting right. And you're in your first, you know, in your first business role, get really clear on how your beliefs impact, how you show up in a business, what you believe is possible for the business, how you relate in the business, because this is, it's a game changer within that context too. And again, that's a lot of where I spend my time is working with people in business in this way. But, but I think it's really overlooked, right? It's like working on yourself is not about sitting on a couch. It's about breaking free of the limitations that prevent you from seeing what's possible. Like a true master, I give Brit two different branches and she finds a way to answer both. I had, <laughs> I, 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 had a, I had a feeling you would figure out a way to do it. So that is epic. What a thank you. Shout out to John for that epic question about MuleSoft. Because I think too, that's just, this really just hammers home like these invisible things. And like, it, it wasn't for you, it wasn't much of a jump for getting someone to the point of closing a 30,000 deal versus a million dollar deal, right? But like, imagine what that unlocks if that just dissolves like Santa Claus that, hey, you know, a million dollar deal could actually be easier. Um, And like the competition is way more fierce for the $30,000 deals, right? And like, is the moment that that evaporates and I can just imagine how that unfolded based on this conversation. So man, this has been so amazing, Britt. Um, Before we wrap up, where can people find out about your work and all the other incredible stuff that you're up to. Yeah. Um, so Brittlefko.com. I'm sure it'll be in the show notes, but B-R-I-T-T-L-E-F-K-O-E, Brittlefko.com. Um, if you're interested in joining the wait list to become a client, uh, feel free to book a call. I would love to talk to you. Um, I'm always excited to connect to new people. So feel free to book a call if you're interested in that. Um, but yeah, go to my website. You can kind of read more about what I'm doing. Um, I have some things that'll be rolling out in the somewhat near future, but, um, yeah, I've been doing a lot of partnerships right now. So I've been really focused on that. So we'll, we'll see what's to come, but definitely if you're interested in learning more, if you're interested in becoming a client, um, book a call. And I was going to say, I have a, a guide that I have on my website right now. That is a, it's a fear of failure, how to reframe your fear of failure. So feel free. It's free. Feel free to, to click on that, get that for free. Um, yeah, love to meet you. Amazing. Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, you heard it. Head to BrittLeftCo.com, B-R-I-T-T-L-E-F-K-O-E.com. And like Britt said, we'll make sure we have that linked up and grab that fear of failure. And man, just, and maybe just go and re-listen to this whole conversation. Like there's just so much like that, again, talking about translating between information and implementation, I forgot the exact word that you use, but like something along those lines, it's like, there's so much prompts, so many questions to be asked, so much homework to be done on this. And this is like an ever evolving journey that we're all on. So man, this has been amazing. I'm just going to wrap up by having a really quick conversation with our friends hanging out with us today. And I could say, you could be listening to any other podcast, you could be doing so many other different things, but something about this episode's episode spoke to you. And so if you're hanging out with us right now, and you're still listening to my voice, that tells me that you have gotten a ton of value or you wouldn't be listening. And so whether it was just listening to Brit's story from the very beginning, or listening to how to make your 
feelings or your your emotions evaporate, your false beliefs evaporate, like realizing that Santa Claus wasn't real anymore. Or maybe it was that MuleSoft case study at the end about what it could look like if you could remove those false beliefs that are in it, preventing you from actually chasing bigger deals. There's so much in here that could transform someone's life. So my ask is that you take a second and you share this with one person that you feel like could benefit from this. And you have no idea the impact that this could make. Maybe they'll never tell you about it. Maybe they will tell you about it, but my life has been changed by powerful content. And I know that there's stuff in here that can change someone's life. So whether you do that or not, I appreciate you so much for listening. And Britt, any final things you want to say before we head out today? Um, I would just say invest in yourself, right? Like whether it's with me or not is irrelevant, but just invest in yourself, whether you pull out a journal. It's so funny, Brandon, that you said the thing about looking at the things that created disharmony in your family to find your beliefs. That's something I tell people to do all the time. So you totally <laughs> nailed it, right? It's like pull out a journal, just, just ask yourself some questions, just get curious about where are the places? What did I take off the table, right? Whatever you took from this episode, but get curious, pull out a pen and paper and just invest some time in yourself because you have to live inside of your brain for the rest of your life, right? And it could be pleasant or unpleasant. And that to me is really the difference between if you do this type of work or not. So, you know, in, in whatever way it is, invest in yourself, whether it's with your time, with your resources, invest in yourself. Yeah. Beautiful. Don't, don't add, just take this as an excuse to ask some of those questions to subtract some more. So I think there's so much there. So amazing, Britt, I appreciate you so much. And we'll be talking to you very soon, my friend. Well, cool, Thanks.